John chapter 3. We're going to pick up at verse 22 and read the rest of the chapter. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, thank you for this, your word. It is light and life and we need it. Lord, may it shine light into our hearts today, exposing sin but also giving hope. Lord, in the world where so many things are false, may we be refreshed by your truth. May your spirit be at work today, showing us you, Jesus, above all, the one from heaven. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we just heard a pretty radical um, portion of Daniel where this great king is going to be downed by a tiny stone cut by no human hand. This is going to be God's stone that he's going to fling at these great kingdoms and they're all going to topple. What, what would it be like to have, as a king, as a great king, to have those words hit your ears? You're going to be surpassed. You're going to get one up. Someone is better than you. What, what, what's it like for you in your life, and you have to think about this a little bit, to, to know that somebody is per- surpassing you? 
Someone out there is better than you. My dad had this saying growing up, maybe some of you have heard it, there's always somebody better than you. And he would say it in two settings, and he wasn't putting me down, he would say it when I would actually luck up and beat him in something. The rare time I could beat him at ping pong or pool, he'd say, remember, there's always somebody better than you. Or when he, this is more the case, when he utterly just destroyed me at something that we were doing, pool, ping pong, games, whatever, know that there's always somebody better than you. It's a great point. It's a truth that John is actually putting on display for us today. He's showing us that Jesus is the highest and the best possible. There's absolutely none higher, none greater than Jesus. And the question hanging over this is, how are we going to do with it? How are we going to deal with that? How do we deal with it in life generally, but also specifically in dealing with Jesus? We might know some of this in a theoretical way, but I think that every single one of us, I can confidently say that every single one of us in this room struggle to some degree with pride, leading to envy and leading us to covet. When we see somebody else's beauty, we might begin to feel ugly. We see someone else's prestige, we may feel less adequate. We see the cars and houses and toys accumulated by our neighbors. We may look around and think, well, I just don't have anything. Envy's a dangerous thing. It's a subtle thing. Covetousness can ruin lives. We saw this in our Ten Commandments study. What does the the Tenth Commandment positively tell us to do? What is required in the Tenth Commandment? Shorter Catechism says this, The Tenth Commandment requireth full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor, and all that is his. Right and charitable. It rolls right off the tongue. Man, that sounds great. And yet everyone struggles with it text before us today teaches a, a powerful lesson. It is, it is telling us how the gospel and Jesus himself can shape us in this area. So far in John's gospel, he's been making the case that in every possible way, Jesus is superior. He starts as big as it could possibly get. It doesn't get any bigger than Jesus. In the beginning was the word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It doesn't get any higher. In John chapter 2, Jesus comes along and fills the empty purification pots with water and then transforms them miraculously into wine that is incredible wine. Also in John chapter 2, Jesus runs out the animals and the money changers from the temple. And then he says, there's a superior temple and it's me. You're going to tear me down, and three days later, I'm coming back. Then in John 3, we read about Jesus exposing the the false hopes of Nicodemus. He knew exactly what Nicodemus was trying to do. He's trying to earn his salvation, and in every way possible, Jesus is saying, you can't do it. He's showing himself again and again and again to be a better way. He's even better than Moses. Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness and saved everybody, and Jesus said, The Son of Man is going to have to be lifted up. Here again today, we have Jesus being superior. 
And we hear it ringing in our ears with John's statement, he must increase and I must decrease. That's how we'll frame this passage before us today. If you've been through the membership class, at least since I've been here, I use this chart. It's a, it's a chart that means a lot because in, sometimes charts can, can give us a vantage point, a perspective on something that really helps us grow, helps us capture um, this thought. And it helps me greatly in thinking about what discipleship is. And this chart is simply, I'm not going to do it full justice, it's just a line, and that, that line is kind of the, the timeline of your life, as it were. And then at some point in that line, the gospel breaks in. The, the good news of Jesus Christ breaks into your life. The wind of God blows, He opens your eyes and your ears, and you hear, and you see, and you believe. And, and that belief looks like two trajectories, two lines. One line goes down. Growing in your Christian life is, is growth down. You begin to understand more and more that you're a sinner. You don't stop sinning. You begin to realize more and more the condition of your own heart. It's a trajectory going down. It's decreasing. And then there's another line going up this way. And it's the glory of God and His holiness. As we see His glory and His holiness... And our sin, and the, what bridges that gap is Jesus Christ himself. He begins to grow and get bigger and bigger in our sight as we see our own sin and his righteousness. That's kind of the trajectory of this text. And we're, we're confronted with this thing, like when, when you're discovering this glorious God, this line that goes this way, are you going to be jealous? Are you going to be envious? So first, I must decrease. Verses 22 to 24 tell us that Jesus and his disciples are in the countryside and Jesus was baptizing. He's actually sanctioning baptism. We'll see in chapter 4 that he was not actually doing the act itself, but this is a baptism of Jesus, one that he is sanctioning. And then look at 25 and 26. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to him and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom he bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, they're in a panic. They're in a panic. They have this conversation and note that he tells us that this conversation is about purity. It's about purification. It's a lesser way. They're in a panic. Everyone, listen, listen to all these absolutes. Look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. And the implication at the end of that is what? They're not coming to you anymore. They're going to him and not you. So true of the human heart. We hate to lose. We do in our pride. We, we don't like to, to lose. We don't celebrate when someone else does something great. How does it strike us when you see others doing well, excelling to where you are and then beyond? All of us, to some degree or another, struggle with this at some level, insecurity and envy. That's exactly what we see here. 
You're like, oh, that's not that bad. In the infant, that's why it's so insidious, right? Do you remember when Cain killed his brother Abel? It was envy. It was envy there, and God said, Hey, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Be careful. Then he plots and kills his brother. The first murder in Scripture rooted in this covetousness of the heart, envy. And I think it's, it's only right for us to talk about when we're thinking about this, it's only right to talk about the church, to my word. Churches are not immune to this kind of thing. Pastors are not immune to, to this kind of thing. Hey, look, everybody's going over there. And it's like it's got to somehow be a competition where, you know, if you're the church where everybody's going, then everybody else has to envy that. It's insidious. And we see it all, all in our Bibles. In Philippians chapter 1, we, we read Paul writing, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former, those who envy, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They're wanting to make me jealous. The church is not immune. My own heart is not immune. Pastors can be the worst. Feel threatened, right? Grow insecure. Silence other people's voices as a result. It's devastating. But notice how John responded. Verse 27. I love this response in simplicity and beauty. The person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. What does that mean? means in this moment, in this crisis of the panic of John's disciples, hey, we're losing ground here. Somebody's better than you. We're in trouble. John says God is sovereign. And every single thing we have in this life, we have it because he has given it to us. Do you see the beauty of that answer? He grounds his philosophy for his own life and ministry in the sovereign hand of God. He has a high view of God as the one who bestows all gifts. It's like, I wouldn't have a thing if it weren't for God. Not one thing. He could tolerate being outstripped by another because he knew that God does not make any mistakes. God is sovereign. And he knew that he belonged to him. So important for us to get this. The reality of people who don't believe in this sovereign God that gives all things, they wind up bitter, discontent in this life. Their lives are marked by this strife and contention, bad attitudes for everything around them. Because you have to live that life with a closed fist. Hey, it's mine and I'm good and I'm better than you. He doesn't end with that statement. He goes on, look at 28 through 30. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him, the one who has the 
bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete, complete joy. Listen to him. First, he says several things here. First, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. We've already mentioned this. John the Baptist, Jesus said of him, of those born among women, there's none greater than John. That's pretty high praise. But he again is reminding us who he is not. We have such a hard time with that. Can our hearts say, I am not the Christ. I cannot save you. I am not the Messiah. Next, he uses a great illustration to explain where he is on this. And this, I think, drills into the heart and and really gets at us in terms of our envy. He says, I'm just a bridegroom. I am not the focus of attention here. I am excited that this person is excelling beyond me. Have you ever been in a wedding, been a part of a wedding? The wedding party is great. Bridesmaids, groomsmen, they all help out. They all get matching outfits. It's great. It's, a, it's this great thing. And, and yet, is that the focus? Is that the center of what's going on? Not even close. Not even close. But you know what? Those, those helpers, they're full of joy. They're not mad or sad or disappointed that well, look at this. No, they're friends and family who are there to love and support and be happy for. And John is saying, that is me with Jesus and my joy is complete. It is full. That is otherworldly faith. He's like, no, I'm not mad. Far from it. When I see, when I see the groom, and I get to hear him and stand next to him and, and be with him and serve him with my life, my joy is complete because he's beautiful. He is the one that everybody should watch. Jesus himself sets us free from envy. The gospel, Jesus Christ come to earth living for us, dying in our place, rising in glorious conquest over death. This gives us the power to move beyond the fear of losing, the fear of being surpassed by others, because you will never, ever, ever surpass Him. You can be okay with who you are. His glory is so much greater and better than us puts everything else in life in perspective for us. We can be grateful to God for who we are. We could look at him with an utterly open hand and say, thank you, not even one thing do I have of my own accord unless you give it to me from heaven. Do you want to know this kind of joy that John is talking about? It only comes in celebrating the other. 
It only comes in losing yourself and finding yourself in Christ. That's where he gets this joy. He's not getting it by something that he's actively doing. The only thing John the Baptist is doing here is losing followers. And he said, I'm full of joy. Because he knows who who God is. He knows who Christ is. He doesn't break out his portfolio and show you all his accolades. He He doesn't have to clamor to get that kind of attention. He doesn't care. It's far from not caring. He's full of joy. Christ is getting bigger and bigger. And his summation here, I must decrease. I must go down this trajectory here. And he must increase. Listen to those commands. I must decrease. And he must increase. Grace Presbyterian Church, we must decrease. It's crazy. We must. Not filled with pride or envy over someone or something else. May our joy be complete as we make much of Christ. We make much of his gospel. May that shape us. So we've heard, largely heard, the, the way down. His famous last words or dying words. You've heard of William Carey, 18th, 19th century and missionary to India and Bangladesh. When he died, one of his buddies penned this statement. He said this, when I am gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified, end quote. I think that's pointing, that illustrates well the, the way down, the trajectory down in life. It's not, it's not about us. He, he, this, this dude did crazy things. Read a book about him sometime. It's, it's nuts. He says, don't talk about me. Talk about Jesus. Look at him. So how about the he must increase part? Immediately we're, we're told of the increase. He must increase. What what does that look like? Again, John backs all the way out to heaven to talk about Jesus. Verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Again, he backs out and says Jesus is as big as it gets. Look at him. You want complete joy? Here's the, here's the way up. Here's the trajectory up. And it's, it is not John the Baptist. He's, he's, he's only going to pay attention to Christ here. He is from heaven. There is none higher. This is the, the focus. Jesus is from heaven. He spoke all things into existence. Not one thing was created with, without Jesus. We think certain guys in our culture are great. We have them everywhere. Incredible athletes, billionaires who fly private rockets into outer space. People have walked and driven vehicles on the moon. That's, 
remarkable. We have brilliant teachers, leading scholars and experts, incredible people in so many fields. None of them even pay, they, they don't even come close to this kind of glory. He's saying Jesus is so big. Do you, do you, want, to, do you want to get over your envy? Look at how grand Jesus is. Look at how big he is. None of these great people that we, our whole culture clamors over them. They don't even pale in, they pale in comparison. They're, they're not even close. The contrast in that verse is beautiful. He who comes from above, his preeminence is above all. Jesus is over all. And then he's talking about John's origin. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and he speaks in an earthly way. It's none greater than Jesus. John is again picking up in in this portion we we heard that not everybody's going to come to him. He's picking up on that theme from John 1 that we're going to see all the way through his gospel. Why why does he keep doing that? We we could talk about this later, but he keeps referring to not everybody is making the trip here. Not everybody is coming to him. Not everybody is being drawn to him. And it's this. He wants us to believe a gospel about a, a Savior who died. And if we're ever going to get it, if we're ever going to get the glory of the Savior, Jesus, we're going to have to hold these two disparate realities in place that Jesus is God in flesh. There is none higher. There is none better. And he is headed to death on the cross. So he's going to keep reminding us, hey, for you, believe, 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 but not everybody's going to. In fact, they're going to hate him so bad at the end of this thing, they're going to kill him. And then, after telling us that, he again ends with two whoever phrases, whoever statements. Remember we heard this last week, whoever believes in him. He, he likes to set up a truth and then, and then turn it on his readers and say, how about you? How about you? What do you think about these truths? The first whoever statement, 33 through 35, whoever receives his testimony and sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son, has given all things into his hand. The first whoever statement is this, take him at his word. Listen to him. And when you do that, you're saying that God is true. To not receive Christ is to set your seal on this. God is a liar. He he says, believe. Trust in him. He again says that Jesus is sent from God and utters the words of God. When you trust Jesus, you authenticate his words. And then he he talks about the Spirit of God. He he has the Spirit of God without measure. This is, again, this trajectory up and up and up. Look at how great Jesus is. The Spirit without measure. Think about some some of the crazy things that, that someone who did not have the Spirit in full measure, but just had the Spirit of God for a time. I love... Kids, you should love reading your Bible. Because 
it has things in there that are just incredible. Samson, the Spirit of God blows on him. That was a threat by a lion. And do you know what Samson did? He, he tore the lion apart with his hands. That's pretty great. You should go back and find it. Read it. He, he tore it apart with his bare hands. A lion. We see this, this tiny, um, tiny little shepherd boy slay a scaly giant. We see an axe float to the surface of a river when somebody dropped it and they had to chop down trees. We see incredible things. We see a widow's son raised from death. And none of them had the spirit without measure. None of them. Only Christ. See what he's saying? The power of our Lord. His beauty. None is, none is as great as Jesus. All these people did great things and they only had a measure. He has it without measure. There's none higher than Jesus. Whoever comes to Christ comes to this. Second, whoever statement, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The conclusion is the exact same as last week. In fact, in many ways, these, these passages are mirrors. And one, there's ambiguity left. What is Nicodemus going to do? He just kind of hangs a question mark on it. And this one, he says, this is how you respond. This is what faith looks like. This is what it looks like to believe. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Do you believe the Son? Do you receive this powerful Christ? Do you see John decreasing and Christ increasing? He's so big, he's so powerful, he's so great. Come to him, believe in him. This passage also holds a warning if you don't obey this son. Again and again and again across this book, we're going to be commanded to believe. What if we disobey? What if we don't believe? The wrath of God remains. That's not a pretty picture. Because this picture, this trajectory up, this he must increase up here, he says that that God can accomplish wrath. Do you believe in this song? Hide in him. Flee to him by faith or face condemnation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this, your word. Lord, the gospel is so freeing. Lord, we hide in you, Christ. And seeing you, gazing at you, could we with John say, we must decrease, and you must increase. This is our desire, this is our prayer. Help us. In Christ's name, amen.